we need to provide high-level treatment services with reputable staff who have experience working with this population and who have experience with recovery in the setting of treatment where they are taken care of, fed three meals a day, given a place to sleep, and given the space and the time, the dignity to be able to begin to address the severe traumas that they've been through. Welcome to In the Circle. I am Tommy Rosen, and this is another great day to be on the path of discovery in recovery. With us in the circle today, we have Bernice, a very special woman, an accredited addiction counselor, person in long-term recovery, working with people who are trying to get sober from some of the most severe forms of drug addiction and alcoholism that we encounter. These are folks who are dealing with intergenerational trauma. Some of them are homeless. They're all dealing with that sense that there's nothing left to live for. They really, really are up against it. Bernice asks, how can I inspire these people into recovery? Can you share some insights, Tommy? This is going to bring us face to face with a social reality that so far no one has been able to solve. How do we deal with the problem of drug addiction when it's mixed with poverty, homelessness, severe trauma, when people are so up against it that they despair even getting through another day and they wonder, is there a reason to be alive? These are folks who feel like they've been forgotten. They are, are stuck in so many ways. And so today's episode is really about looking at what we can do, how we can position ourselves to be of use, to be inspiring to people who are this down and out. It's so important we take a look at this. I will be very vulnerable and honest about my privilege in this episode, and we will talk quite a bit about the shortcomings of society and also provide some important hints leading to some of the solutions. Before we jump into this episode, let's take a moment now for an important message from Recovery 2.0. Hey, what's up everyone? This is Tommy Rosen and I am here with an invitation for you to join me and the Recovery 2.0 community in Northern England at the most extraordinary castle and 3,000 acres of land. It's called Broughton Hall. This is where we go for our yoga, health, wellness, spirituality. It's a retreat that we call coming home because it really is like stepping into the, the groundedness of Northern England. Magic, mystery. It's like walking through a museum. And they've combined this ancient history of the place with a completely new perspective on health and wellness the kitchen, the food, state of the art. And so you have this beautiful melding of the old and the new. And there we are, people in recovery from anything and everything, gathered together in the spirit of community. Come check us out. Learn more. r20.com forward slash England 2024. So we have Bernice here. Um, tell me what's on your mind today. What's on your heart? Well, I would say coincidentally, but it wasn't coincidentally. The day I saw the email about the questions, I had done an early recovery group and 
one of uh, the people there, man, he's in his 30s, a lot of really, really tough life. He said, I find it hard to stay motivated to, you know, stay clean because I don't have anything to live for. And, you know, I just felt that, you know, and this is, you know, the population I work with it is there. Most of them are in poverty, uh, tough living situations. Uh, we have a lot of people here that are on methadone. They can't, you know, and they still are use, using heavy amounts of fentanyl. And I just, you know, I feel I wish I knew how to convey that recovery is worth it when sometimes it seems like that 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 getting high is the only thing in life that they find enjoyable a relief from their pain hmm. and uh I, I try as hard as i can uh but i would really really love some insight into this and you know yes wow i cannot thank you enough for this inquiry i'm gonna dive in for a little bit here, and let's see where we go. This is, this is so important. Thank you uh, for bringing this into the circle today. Okay, so I'm fully aware that you're working with a population that is impoverished, both in terms of material things, but also in terms of spirit. All of us, when we're caught in addiction of any kind, we are impoverished in spirit. That is also to say disconnected from spirit. I am aware of what you're describing in terms of a group of people who are in so much pain and are experiencing so much disconnection and suffering that for some of them, at some times, in certain circumstances, it seems the better choice to just simply get high, to be relieved of the pain of existence. So I'm speaking now about concepts that I feel and have experienced as being universal, whether I'm working with people from the population that you're describing or working with a human being who has more money than they'll ever know how to spend, who is suffering in abject addiction. I'm speaking across all swaths of gender, race, color, country, I'm speaking across the human experience. Everyone has access to love, even though we may be terribly disconnected from it. Our work with anybody is to reconnect them with love. No matter where they are on the economic spectrum, the opportunity is always to return to the present moment. Now, the problem with that is that many of the people you're speaking about, many of the people that Gabor Mate have written about, has written about in, especially in, in the realm of Hungry Ghost during his time working with this population you're describing in, um, in Vancouver, is that there's trauma that's so deep, deeply seated, intergenerational trauma that somehow the patterns that are, that are written into these human beings' experience have to be broken. We have to break the pattern. Pattern interrupt. Pattern interrupt can take place simply when one human being, like you, earnestly listens to another person's experience, showing them the dignity and the courtesy and the love 
just to hear them and see them, not judge them. I have to put aside my notions of where I would like that person to be as a teacher, as a mentor or a sponsor or a facilitator of any kind. I have to understand who I am, what I am, where I'm coming from, and make sure that doesn't get in the way of my presence with these people who are different than me in that they've had uh, a different set of life experiences. If I can put myself aside and my desire for them aside or what I think is possible for them, it helps me to be in the present moment and hear them and see them and love them as they are. Since I know that I have no control over their actions any more than I have control over the unfolding of their experience in life, my job is to simply reflect presence and love. I'm here with you. I understand your experience. It has been my experience that to continue to use drugs and alcohol, while it may seem like the only solution at certain moments, is not ever the only solution. The solution is connection and love. I live in a city, Los Angeles, where we have 70,000 homeless people right now. 70,000. That's a city. That's a, that's a reasonably sized city <laughs> of people who have nowhere to go. Nowhere to go to the bathroom. Nowhere to count on eating any given day, and they don't have a roof over their head. And smarter people than I have been trying to address this problem for a very, very long time. And there are systemic problems that get in the way of trying to address these kinds of problems. And the first thing that comes to my mind in dealing with any population of people who are suffering is they have to be heard and they have to be seen. And realistic expectations need to be presented. For example, in my work, I'm a yoga teacher. And, and if anybody asks me to do a little breath or to do some yoga, anybody, whether, you know, I've had homeless people ask me, you know, hey, would you show me a thing or two? Of course. I love it. Let's do some yoga, you know. But for me to think that yoga is going to be the solution to the life challenges that these people have in terms of just simply getting a roof over their head or feeding themselves or breaking out of severe, severe addiction, I don't think I have that. I don't really believe that. Yoga in the sense of, of the place where everything is connected, that makes sense to me. We need to move to the place where everything's connected, but not in the sense of practicing like the exercise of yoga. So I'm just giving an example of one thing that I think would be uh, absurd and ridiculous to try to present to a group of people who are really suffering. There's a timing and there's an unfolding to someone's recovery. So this is the specific and succinct answer right now that I'd like to, to give to your inquiry. Though I do not have the answer to exactly how to pay for these services or support these services, these people need treatment. They need distance between themselves and the decision and the action of using drugs and alcohol. They have to have treatment. Too rare is the person who is in the kind of trauma and the kind of life situation that this population are in that can just get sober, can walk off the street into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and get sober. It is possible. It is possible. I've seen it. I've seen homeless people walk off the street into a 12-step meeting, get sober, and turn their whole life around. I have seen that. 
but I haven't seen it work in enough cases for that to be the, the okay, well, this must be the solution. It's too rare for that to be the only solution. I, I love that as one of the possibilities for somebody. Thank God it's there. We need to provide treatment services, high level treatment services with reputable staff who have experience working with this population and who have experience with recovery, people like you, in the setting of treatment where they are taken care of, fed three meals a day, given a place to sleep, and given the space and the time, the dignity to be able to begin to address the severe traumas that they've been through. Now this is for the people who are open to help. Many of the people you're speaking about are not open to help. Some of them are so scared, so angry, so hurt, so traumatized that if you came near them on the street, they might curse at you, they might become violent toward you, they might run away from you, but they certainly don't want your, your help. So you've got, it's not as if all of these people are like, please, please help me. Some of them are, and we should have services for anybody who's willing to seek treatment. And the services should be paid for by the government, by the state or the city or the federal government, without question. That, how, how that isn't happening in, in the United States of America today is beyond me because we have an addiction epidemic. Uh, we're all aware of it. All the politicians are on the bandwagon of saying they want to do something about it. And one of the most powerful, powerful things you could do is give somebody 30 days of treatment and dignity and help them get onto a path of recovery. So I'm an advocate for treatment. For somebody who's on the street, who has no money and no job and no connections and no possibility, um, obviously that person is either going to come into some kind of community or they're going to remain isolated and remain alone and the chances of them finding recovery or finding support in any form is going to be incredibly difficult and, and just low. If it can't be inpatient treatment, then all right, outpatient treatment. How about intensive outpatient IOP for people on the street or people who are highly addicted to these drugs? Again, they're going, most of them are going to need medical detox first, especially the alcoholics and the opiate addicts. And if somebody's you know, bringing amphetamine, methamphetamine or cocaine into this, they also are going to need, you know, medical support. We know how to help somebody to begin to get onto the right path. But the, the thing that we don't really know is how to keep people there. And the, big, the biggest challenge in recovery today for a person at any economic level is what happens when we leave treatment. If you're fortunate enough to be able to afford treatment, to come from a wealthy family, or to have good enough insurance that it will cover treatment for you for 30 days, which is rarer and rarer these days. Usually it's like 14 days is the max now. When we know that to keep a person in treatment for 30 days is, is, brings better outcomes than to keep them in for just two weeks. But the challenge is if a person stays sober and gets it and starts to heal in treatment in a very safe environment, a safe cocoon, what's our society's answer for what happens next? Well... We have outpatient, step-down programs, PHP partial hospitalization programs. We have therapy and very many therapeutic modalities. 
Um, but I don't think it's clear to people, and, and I mean everybody, I don't think it's clear. The critical nature of aftercare, we need a plan that gets somebody through 12 months, the first year of recovery. We need a plan for our society that gets somebody through 12 months. And so, you know, if and when we finally understand that a person doesn't heal intergenerational trauma and lifelong issues in 30 days, that it's critically important for a person to continue the work one day at a time and to have support structures, communities. I'm, I'm big on 12-step programs. I'm big on it. It's free. I'm big on it because other people are there and they also want to improve their life. It's great. And then the Recovery 2.0 pieces, what I'm working on in my life is helping people in recovery to live their greatest life possible, which involves continuing work in the 12 steps, also keeping a healthy body, healthy mind, and a connected spirit. It's a big investigation and it's a big effort, but it's the best effort and I love it and it brings people great joy to just do the work. Um, it's not like swimming upstream anymore. It's a joy. There's a joy to it once you get to a certain point. Okay. So when somebody comes to me and says, I really don't feel like there's any reason to be alive. The only thing I can think to do is to listen and hold that person. And I mean, hold them if they're willing to be held, give them a hug and be a witness of their experience and do whatever I can in my power to support them into protocols that can help them break out of the patterns that they've been stuck in. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And it's very difficult to be in our field, as you well know, to see somebody not make it, which happens all the time, especially when we know from our own personal experience that you can make it and there is a way through any block. It's the hardest question really. I think most of us have known somebody at this point who has died from addiction. Some of us know many, many people. Uh, if you work in the field, of course, you're going to know many, many people who don't make it. And many, many of us by now, uh, especially through the, the pandemic and our, our society's reaction to the pandemic, we also know people who have killed themselves because it became just too much. And the isolation and the loneliness became too much. And so because we have compassion and are in the world and care, we keep showing up and listening and looking for ways to create resources and programs and different things that can support somebody from that place of desperation forward. Now, here's the thing. I am a person who felt that desperation at points in my life. And I'm seeing you nod your head and you're saying you, you yourself as well. The difference here is that I had a family that was supporting me, that loved me and was present for me. We had financial resources that could get me support and help. These things are not lost on me. I recognize that as my privilege. And I recognize that others don't have those privileges. I don't have an answer to solving the problem for everybody. But I know that those people need treatment. I know that they need to be seen and heard and loved just like me. I know that money or no money, money won't keep a person sober. But it sure helps when you're trying to get somebody the resources necessary to get the support they need to break out of a pattern like this. All we can really do is the best that we can do and try to come together as we do in this way and many, many ways to try to create the systems 
and to create the protocols and to raise the resources and the awareness of the problem and solutions to the problem that we can begin to chip away at this one human being at a time, which is what we do. I feel the need to address the idea of medication and harm reduction here, especially with this population. I'm going to say some very, very controversial things right now. Um, and I hope that the people hearing this understand that this is coming out of my understanding and my direct experience. Sometimes I have felt like medication-assisted treatment is, or harm reduction is throwing in the towel on a human being. Sometimes I have felt that. I felt that way because as a person who has had access to teachers and teachings, the practice of yoga, healthy food, that I, I have some solutions and some ideas also, aside from the economic advantages that I have, there are ideas that have come and presented themselves to me, which have been incredibly helpful for me. So I have thought, whether you agree with me or not, to keep a person on medication, which is itself addictive and keeps them in the frequency of addiction, what I write about and speak about all the time, is a concern to me, especially as a, as a strategy, as a core strategy for solving the addiction problem. Even though I feel the way I just described to you, sometimes, I said sometimes, so I want to make sure everybody heard that word sometimes, I have felt that it's like throwing in a towel on a human being. Like, I understand the importance of providing clean syringes to people who are shooting heroin. I understand that they're not just going to stop shooting heroin. I understand the idea of condoms. Uh, and preventing the spread of AIDS and other, other sexually transmitted diseases. I understand other forms of harm reduction. I get the strategy of it. For me, I'm working with a group of people who are attracted to moving beyond addiction altogether. And I have to sit here in front of you and I have to tell you that there are some people who are not at all ready or able to pick up the tools that I would want to offer them. And if those people will benefit in their life from medication-assisted treatment or any other form of harm reduction, uh, I would not want to stand in the way of it. So both things are true. I wish, idealistically, that everyone could pick up the spiritual gifts of the 12 steps, which is actually free and available to everybody. I wish that everybody had access to food and clean water. I wish that everybody had a home and a place to go. And I wish that people would in, engage from a place of, of recovery, a foundation of recovery. I wish very, very much that everybody would pick up the tools of yoga and meditation and breath work because it changes your life forever in the most profound ways. I wish this. And I recognize that there's a group of people that will be able to uh, pick up those tools and there's a group of people that will not. Because I feel that sometimes that harm reduction sometimes is like throwing the towel in on a group of people, meaning we don't think they're going to do any better than this. We don't think they're going to be able to get past these problems. So we need to alleviate their pain the best we can. I understand the thinking. I do. I wish for more for those people. And who am I? Who am I to say? How arrogant, really for me to wish anything for, for someone else. I don't know if that's their destiny. I don't know that that's something they would desire. 
Just because it's worked for me, why do I think it will work for them or be interesting to them <laughs> in any way? Maybe the best thing that can happen for these people is that they, they are on methadone or suboxone and uh, they figured out how to, how, to, how to live a life at that, you know, in that way, in that lifestyle with the support of those medications. You know, maybe that is the best that's, that's possible for them. From where I am, for me personally, I could say I, I am very thankful to be free of the need for drugs in any form. And because I was such a severe drug addict, I wonder if that's not possible for anybody, even the poorest of our population, if only we could figure out resources and treatment facilities and, and a path for these people to move forward into true recovery. So I want to be the first to say here on In the Circle, I really don't have the answer to this problem. Obviously, I have some thoughts about it. I've thought about it uh, quite a bit over the last 30 years, 40 years. And um, gosh, I can only have my perspective because of my experience and my history and the resources that have been available to me and, and all of the things. But when I see people show up in treatment and many of these people have money and they are put on uh, these drugs for long periods of time, suboxone, methadone, benzodiazepines, it raises a red flag for me. I am concerned for them. And I believe that they're going to experience some, some suffering moving forward. And I do believe there is an option. I do believe there is an option. I always believe that. But again, who am I? Who am I to say for anybody else? So I want you to share with me, Bernice, a little bit on, on what I've shared and what you're thinking. I knew that that's a really, really difficult question, and and there is no one answer. Um, but it's helpful just to hear your thoughts because sometimes I just feel like, what am I doing? I'm pinning, trying to pin Jello to the wall every day. It seems like, um, but I do come from a place of love uh, and empathy because uh, you know I had a terrible time. Uh, maintaining abstinence from alcohol and benzodiazepines and cocaine. And <clears throat> I know how difficult it is. Uh, I, you know, and I don't be like, oh, you, you could do it. I don't come across like that. I tell, I tell them, I said, listen, I know it's hard. I know it's painful. Um, but I also can tell you getting and staying clean and sober was the hardest thing I ever did but it was the best thing I ever did in my life. You know, I mean, I was at the point too of desperation. I thought I can't do this because I would, you know, stay, uh, not drink, take drugs for six months a year, then bam, I was called, called a chronic relapser. And that really, when that term was applied to me, some, uh, a person at detox said that to me, I was like, Oh, no, <laughs> I refuse to accept that. No. Uh, so they kind of did me a favor because I was, it galvanized me in a way to be like, oh. And then every day forward, what I said to myself was, I will not let this be my life. Mm. And, you know, I kept trying. I didn't give up. And, you know, I've uh, been sober 15 years and, you know, I, I, I work with this community now for uh, 14 years uh, and 
I'll be 70 in September, but you know, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere, <laughs> you know? And uh, mm. one time we had a conversation, I believe it was at Kripalu and you were explaining how wonderful it is to be an elder. And so I embraced that instead of being like, oh no, I'm getting old. I really worked on embracing that concept that because of my experience, I have something special to give people. You have something special in your spirit, in your radiance, in your experience and your history and the work that you're doing in the world is so extraordinary and the patience that you bring to it. It's just, you are uniquely suited, Bernice. It's, it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. I want to ask you a question, uh, in your work, tell me about a success story. Oh, wow. Mm, yeah, this is awful right now. I can't think of anybody. Mm -hmm. That that's really sad. This is such a chronic population. I understand. Yeah. And, and that that says so much. That says so much about the toxicity of our society, the disconnected nature of things, how how uh, disowned these people are. Mm. That breaks my heart a little bit. Me too. Um, how did you know so the success essentially the success is you and you're working you're working at sharing that with a group of people that are in dire straits yeah yeah um and maybe i'm measuring success as uh, you know something too you know, somebody left and five years later they came back and said, I'm still clean because, but we do have some people who will go into a facility and uh, spend, like you say, a lot of times two weeks or um, three weeks and come out and not, you know, not use for a little while. So that can be a success too. And, you know, harm reduction is a very difficult concept to, to deal with. I'm old school, and yes. uh, but I got to meet, I meet my people where they are, yes. you know, and I'm not mad at them for, you know, for, I don't expect them to, you know, behave like angels or, you know, just be an A student or I don't, you know, I even mean the term like that, but I understand that, you know, it, it's a re it's not a straight line. It's a really jagged path. It goes up, it goes down, it goes to the side. And, and, uh, you know, as long as I can support them and, uh, suggest something helpful to them, because of course we can't force anything on anybody. Uh, you know, I make suggestions, perhaps it would benefit you to go to uh, inpatient or long-term residential, you know, because it doesn't seem like this level of care is working. And sometimes people say yes, but yes. often they say no. Well, I, I think what you said about uh, success and, and sort of rechecking, reorganizing for ourselves what, what success looks like for this population. I remember in Gabor Mate's book, uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, he began the book by saying, if, if one were to measure a doctor's success in his career, the healing of his patients, I have failed. That's what he wrote. I have failed to turn the lives around of these people. And yet, I have seen firsthand miracles that have taken place from people who were in the worst of the worst situations, 
who turned their lives around, broke out of the intergenerational pattern of trauma and addiction that they were in to live extraordinary lives. I've seen it myself. And so if I had never seen it, then I, I would have to question, is this possible for this group of people? But it is. It really, truly is. And so, uh, again, it comes down to love. It comes down to presence. It comes down to resources. Um, these people need a level of care and a level of help that is hard to find, especially if you don't have money to pay for it. And so the, the effort needs to be trying to improve what's available to everybody in terms of treatment and these modalities of care. I want to just finish this quickly by just saying that I started by saying that everybody has access to love. And I believe that. And I don't know what that mystical alchemy is where love finds its way to someone's heart who's been so disconnected. But I know that at my bottom, I had nothing left. And I had cornered myself. And it, it just took one phone call with my father where he said, you've got to get help. You've got to get help. So I had a person. I had a person. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not one of those people. I'm not going there. I'm not going to. No, 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 no. I had nothing in my life. My life had failed. But when my father started crying on the phone, a little door opened, the tiniest opening, and the grace got in. And I was able to, it broke through my stubbornness. It broke through my addiction for just a split second. And I actually saw how my behavior had affected him and had affected others. And I, I could see clearly for a moment. And I said, I'll go get help. Dad, I'll go. Stop crying. I will go get help. And that's how it began. So I, I really believe there's an angel in everybody's story. Somebody showed up at the right moment with the right words and the right tone and the right love behind it that changed the trajectory of someone's life. None of us know how to make that happen. We only know how to show up for somebody who's suffering and who's, who's needing something and to just be present for the moment when they might say, God, things are so bad. And you could say, well, I love you and I want to help you get the help you need. Now for this group of people, there just has to be an angel and there just has to be somewhere that they can go get the help that they need if, if they're willing. And so we're, we're, this is a work in progress and we're working on it as a society today. I'm so grateful to you for this inquiry, Bernice. It's a powerful one. Thank you for joining us today on In the Circle. It is now time for an invitation. If you are wondering or anyone you know is wondering about how to find a community of people in recovery dedicated to living their best life, come check out Recovery 2.0 online meetings. We have over 30 meetings every week. People are finding themselves and their tribe there. Super powerful, super welcoming, super loving. It is really an amazing thing. There is no reason to be alone on the path of recovery. Let's come together in this powerful way. You can find our meetings at r20.com forward slash meetings. That's r20.com forward slash meetings. I look forward to being with you again next week on In the Circle. Until that time, 
stay on your recovery path, ask for help whenever you need it, and never despair. There's a way through every block.